Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Paul is showing us how God uses all of his word to bring us to the place that God wants us to be. And here's how we know this, because when a conversation between the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ versus the law of the Old Testament, when this conversation comes up, Paul does not say, okay, now just forget about the Old Testament, forget about all that law stuff, forget about all that because you don't need it anymore. He does not say that. In fact, he goes the opposite and he says, God has actually given us that just like God gave to us the promise. And how that both of these things, the promises of God and the law of God, how that, how that both of these things are working in the heart and the life of the believer to bring us to the place that God wants us to be. Paul is showing this in two ways. He's using two different analogies, and the analogy is the promise and the law. And he's using two different examples of that. The promise and the example of the promise is seen in the person of Abraham. And so he's contrasting the promise with Abraham with the law and Moses. I think we have an image to help you see this, uh, that, 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 that we can see the contrast. You have that for me, Nathan? Put that up there. You have Abraham and the promise, and then you have Moses and the law. You have Abraham and faith, and then you have Moses and the works of the flesh. And God, what Paul is doing is Paul is saying both of these examples were given to us as a way of helping us understand all that God desires for you and for me. You have Abraham, relationship. You have Moses, rules. You have Abraham going out into the desert. You have Moses going up into the mountain. You have Abraham who understood the full meaning of freedom in pursuit of God. And then you have Moses who understood the meaning of failure in relation to keeping the law of God in that Moses looks over into the promised land but is not allowed to go into the promised land. Why? Because he did not keep the law of God. Okay, so he's contrasting in this chapter, he's contrasting how both of these examples help us understand all that God has for you and all that God has for me. And how do we then understand that we are in faith by grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, but then what do we do with all these laws, with all these rules, with all these things that Christians are supposed to do or are not supposed to do. But let me help you understand it in this way. That Paul uses Abraham and his journey of faith, and Paul uses Moses and his understanding of the law to help us realize that God is giving you and me a certain divine direction in our lives. It's like understanding the arrows in the parking lot. We have arrows in our lot. We have a prominent arrow indicating that one lane is served or serves the purpose of an entrance. 
we have another arrow indicating that one lane serves the purpose of an exit. That you're supposed to come in this way, and you're supposed to go out that way. How many of you saw all the lines on the parking lot, right? We even have signs in our parking lot that says that this is where visitors are supposed to park. And if you are a member, you are not supposed to park there. And we ask that, right? We have, we have certain rules and directions for the parking lot and how we operate in the parking lot. And we have that for a reason. We have that for a purpose. But how many of you know that there are some people who drive in the parking lot however they want to drive? They park in the parking lot wherever they want to park. So imagine this, right? We have a, there's a specific lady. She will remain unnamed. She enters the parking lot the wrong way every Sunday. Every Sunday. So we approached her and just made sure she understood that the arrow in meant that is the way you go in. And the arrow out was the way that you go out. And she told us, she said, I know. <laughs> and I don't care. <laughs> so imagine this. She's not just careless. She's very deliberate in disobeying the arrows, right? I wrestle with this as a pastor. I go, now what do I do with that? Someone who knows that that's the visitor parking. Someone who knows that that's the entrance in. Someone who knows that that's the exit out. Now what do we do? So just, just go with me in the imaginary conversation I have with this lady. I say something to her like, well, ma'am, if you know that this is the entrance in, you know that's the exit out, and you know this is the visitor parking, then why do you keep going against the signs? And imagine she says, well, I just, I just choose to. I just want to. So, so me, you know, saying, well, listen, the Bible says things should be done decently and in order. And we want to be a church that operates decently and in order. So if you continue to come into the, the out and you continue to go out through the end and you continue to park in the visitor parking spot, well, then you're not welcome to come to church anymore. You imagine what her response would be. Imagine her responding to me and saying, well, what's the big deal, Pastor? You're making a big deal out of nothing. It's just paint on the parking lot. There's just lines in, in, in the, on the asphalt. It's just a sign. I mean, really, what's the big deal? Is it really important that I go out the in or in the out? Is it more important for me to park here, for them to park there? Or is the important thing that I'm here to worship God? So imagine I respond to that. And I said, well, yes, it's certainly important for you to worship God. And yes, it's certainly important for you to pray. But if you do not follow the directions in the parking lot, you're going to cause a fender bender. Or if you don't follow the directions in the parking lot, someone's going to get hurt. Or if you don't follow directions in the parking lot, a visitor is going to have to park on the street, and then they're going to start their entire church experience off on the wrong foot, and then they're not going to come back. And imagine she goes, well, I don't care. That's just what I want to do. Oh, now we got a problem. So imagine I say to her in return, well, fine, if that's how you're going to be, we're going to bring you up in the middle of the church service and we're going to excommunicate you from our church. <laughs> Following directional arrows in the parking lot is that important. The parking lot committee of Jerusalem 
has confronted Paul. And what, he's, what they're saying to Paul is, there's arrows in the parking lot. You're not following them. And no one in the church is following them. And there's directional arrows. So now you're letting everybody in the church just drive all over the parking lot and park anywhere they want to park. And now we don't know what to do. And if no one's going to follow the arrows, well, then what good are the arrows? That's the question. If no one's following the arrows and everyone's just driving and parking wherever they want, why do we have arrows and why do we have parking signs? And nobody answered that question better than Paul. Paul answers that question in three ways. You have a note? You have some notes so you can follow along with us. He says, number one, he says, there is the certainty of the promise of God. Why did God give us the law and, 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 the, and the promise? Why did God give us Moses and Abraham? And why does God give us rules and relationship? What, how are we supposed to do? What do we do with the Arabs? That's the question. Number one, the certainty of the promise. So Paul is saying, God has gone on record. So Paul uses all kinds of legal terms. He uses terms like covenant or promise or inheritance, which are all legal terms. And he says, God has gone on record in a way of which you and I can be certain of God. God has put himself on the record 430 years before the law ever showed up. God said, this is how you relate to me. And the way you relate to me is by faith. The just shall live by faith. So the way you relate to me, the way you're justified, the way you're, the way you're made right with God is by faith in God. And so God is, Paul is saying God wants us to be certain of him. God wants us to be sure of him. There are not very many people in this world who are good for their word. But God is good for his word. And God is good for his word all the way down to the last syllable. God is good for his word all the way down to the tense of the word that he used. God is good for his word. Every jot and every tittle shall in no wise pass from the law until all be fulfilled. So you can be certain of the promise of God. But it's not just that. The promise of God is seen in this way as in a covenant. So Paul uses an example. This is verse number 15. So I speak after the manner of man. I'm going to use something of your own traditions and customs. That's what he's saying. I speak after your own traditions and customs. So if a man enters into a covenant or a contract, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. So he's saying, once you enter into a contract, neither party can violate the terms of the contract, neither party can break the terms of the contract, and in that way, God has entered into a contract. He's entered into a promise. He's entered into a covenant with Abraham in that God said he would bless all the world through the seed of Abraham, which is Christ. So think of it this way. Suppose you were writing your final will and testament. Suppose you were saying if something were to happen to me and to my spouse, we're leaving the house, the car, the money, we're leaving it all to our oldest child. And then just, God forbid, let's just say, something happens to you and your spouse. And the judge comes in and she 
She opens up the books and she says, with your oldest child standing in front of her, she says to him, you get the house, you get the money, you get all the inheritance, it's all coming to you. And then say the judge closes the book, slides it over to the side, and then says, now the only way I'm going to give it to you is if you go to this college and if you major in this degree and if you get this GPA. Does the judge have the right to do that? Yes or no? No. The judge cannot change what is in the agreement. The judge cannot change what is in that final will and testament. The judge does not have the right to add or subtract or change a ratified document. And that's what Paul is saying. And in that way, God already gave a promise. God already gave a, a, a covenant. God already went on record. And something that comes 430 years after the promise cannot change the promise. That, that is a way to say that the commandments of the law do not change the promise of God. The commandments of the law do not change the promise of God. Because they came 430 years after the promise. Because God had already entered into a promise. Because God has already given him his word. The promise is seen as the covenant. The promise is, the promise, let it be there, the promise is what we can be confident in. That we can be confident in. We can be so confident that God will fulfill his word, that God will even fulfill his word down to the very tents. God did not say to your offsprings. God said to your offspring. God did not say to your offsprings as in many, many laws. God said to your offspring as in one, and there is one from God, one with God, and that was Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying, even the tense, listen, believers, we can believe God all the way down to the very last word. God will be good to his word. God will fulfill every letter of his word for you and for me. And there are some people that go, well, this is why Christians are silly. And Christians are silly because you place so much confidence in God's word. And you place so much confidence in God. But, but hear me on this point. Everyone is placing confidence in something. Everyone is saying, I believe this because of that. I, I am sure of this because of that. I, I, I am, this is undeniably true because of this. And so people look at Christians and go, Christians are silly because you, you say the promises of God are undeniably true because you have the word of God. But hear me on this. To base your confidence on anything or anyone other than God is cosmic silliness. It's just it's even more silly. It's, it's a greater silliness to say, well, because this, which is less than God or less than the Word of God, well, but I heard a guy say one time that this was it, so because I heard a guy say one time that, I believe this. Well, what I would say to that is, that's cosmic silliness. 
Our confidence is based not in man's opinion, not in man's idea, but our confidence as believers is based not in the performance of the church, not in the performance of religiousness or religious people. Our confidence is based in God's Word. This is why... As, as a church, we believe in the Bible teaching and preaching method. We use God's Word. This is why we're committed to preaching through God's Word. It's why we say things like, next chapter, next verse. Well, why? Because we're committed to God's Word. Why are we as a church so committed to God's Word? Because this is what shores up our faith. Because this is what we stand on. Because this is what gives us strength. Because we're confident in God's Word. That's why we're committed to God's Word. So how does God fulfill His Word? That's the question. Well, when you get to the New Testament, it says this, that in Christ are the promises of God, yes, and amen. That, that means in Christ, all the promises of God are yes and agreeable. Look what it says. What was the seed then? How did God fulfill the seed? How did God fulfill the promise? Look at verse number 16. He tells you. Just, it's explicit. It's not even implicit. It's explicit. How did God fulfill his promise? He fulfilled his promise in that he gave Abraham a seed. He gave Abraham a promise. That promise is seen in Christ. Verse number 16, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Okay, so the promises, we can be certain of the promises of God. Number two, well, what's the purpose of the law then? And we still have that question that's hanging over us in verse number 19. So wherefore serveth the law? Well, why did God give us the law? Well, in a general sense, the law serves as a restraint. In a general sense, the law serves as a restraint. Let me, let me use a, an easy illustration everybody in the room can relate with if you're being honest. Here's the question. Why do you not speed badly? Notice I did not say you don't speed. I said, why do you not speed badly? Why do you just barely creep right above the speed limit and then whenever you see an officer, you quickly administer the brake? Why do, why do you just barely drive above the speed limit? Why do you not speed badly? Because you're righteous? Because unrighteous people speed badly, and righteous people only go 5 to 10 miles over the speed limit. No, why do you not speed badly? You do not speed badly because you are afraid of the consequence of breaking the law. What's the consequence of breaking the law? What's the consequence of speeding badly? A ticket. Right, so in that sense, the law serves as a restraint. In fact, that's what he says. Before, we were shut up unto the law. He's saying we were caged in. We were restrained. You can take a lion, and you can put it in a cage, and you can cage in the lion. But you have not changed the nature of the lion. It's still a lion. He said the law can cage you in. It can restrain you. It can tell you what you could or couldn't do, what you should or shouldn't do, but it cannot change you in that sense. It cannot justify, it cannot redeem, and it cannot give you life. The law in that sense only restrains you. So now I don't speed because I'm afraid of the repercussions or I'm afraid of the consequence of breaking. But that does not make us righteous. Look at me. It makes us fearful. 
It doesn't give us freedom. It gives us fear. And God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So God isn't filling our hearts and minds with fear so that we walk, walk all through our day afraid to make God angry at us because we did something that God did not want us to do, so now we're getting struck by a lightning bolt. And yet many people, how they relate to God is exactly that way. They relate to God through a spirit of fear, not through a spirit of freedom. And what Paul is saying is the law in a general sense cages you in. The law in a general sense, it restrains you. But also the law reveals your heart to you. The law of God serves like a mirror. You woke up this morning, at least I hope, you woke up this morning and looked in the mirror and when you looked in the mirror, you saw some dirt on your face, but the mirror cannot remove the dirt. The mirror just shows you the dirt. You looked in the mirror, the mirror revealed a pimple on your chin, but the mirror cannot get rid of the pimple. It just shows you the pimple. And in that way, the law of God serves to reveal to us who we are. The law of God serves us like an MRI. It cannot do the surgery on us, but it shows us the area of which we need a surgical procedure done. And what was that area? That area was not our fingers and toes. It was our own very heart, so that our heart was far from God. The law of God reveals to us our own sinful nature. And what does the law show you? And what does the law show me about ourselves? It shows us, letter A, that we are all disobedient to God. Look, look, look at verse number 22. Look at verse 22. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin. Look at verse number 10. And cursed is everyone that continueth not in, what's the words? All things which are written in the book. So we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. That every person, every one of us in this room, every person who has ever lived has disobeyed the law of God. And what Paul says is, if you disobey the law of God in any point, then you are, diso then you are guilty of disobeying the law of God at every point. If you're, if you're guilty of violating the law of God in any area, then you have violated the law of God in every area. And we don't think that way, do we? No, we think, in, well, there's, there's degrees of breaking the law of God. Well, certainly, pastor, I'm not perfect. We even say things like this. Well, no one's perfect. Well, certainly no one's perfect, but I'm not as imperfect as her. I'm not as imperfect as him. I know what they did. They did stuff worse than me. And what Paul says is, it doesn't matter if what they did was worse or if what you did was better. We all broke the law of God. And if you have not obeyed all of the law of God, then you are not like God in that you are guilty of breaking God's law in that we have all sinned. The law of God puts a demand on you and puts a demand on me. And here's the demand. Be perfect in every area of your life. That's why Jesus in Matthew 5, he gets to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, what does he say? Be ye perfect as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. What's the standard? The standard is not the pastor. The standard is not your grandmother or grandfather. The, grand, the standard is not the most spiritual person you know. 
the standard is perfection. And who in the room would say, I've been perfect? None of us. There's no one in this room, there's no one in the world that can claim that they have been perfect except one. And that one was the Lord Jesus Christ. He was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. That Jesus Christ is the only one who mediated. He was a go-between between the law and us. That's why, Paul that's why Paul says that you can't have a mediator who's on one side. The law demands perfection. That's on God's side. Moses was imperfect. So Moses could not mediate the law between Israel, the people of God, and God. Moses was not the Messiah. Moses was not the one we were looking for. Abraham was not the Messiah. Abraham was not the one we were looking for. The one we were looking for, our Messiah, was the Lord Jesus Christ. In what sense? In that he fulfilled, in that he completed, in that he did all that God asked of him in his word. He was in all points tempted like we are, and yet he was without sin. And the law of God, when it hits our heart, it shows us how we are disobedient to God. Let me illustrate it, let me illustrate it by using your children as an example. Inside the heart of every child, and I would even say inside the heart of every person in this room right now, inside the heart of every child is a desire to do our own thing. Right? All of us in, internally, we're out, I do my own thing, my own way, my own timing, I call my own shots, I'm my own boss. Inside of all of our hearts, that lays, and it lays dormant in the heart of a child. And so this little kid, just doing this, he's so cute, he's so cuddly, he's so nice, right? But inside of him or her is this little rebellious spirit that says, I want to do my own thing. But you don't see that rebellious spirit until when? Until dad walks in the room and dad says, don't do that. And when dad says, Jesse, don't do that. And Jesse, his little independent rebellious spirit, verbalizes what? No! No, I want to do it. That the dreaded two-letter word that little kids are so good at saying, right? No! Did anyone teach their, did anyone send their children to rebellious camp? Did anyone send their children to disobedient school? Did you teach your child how to lie? No, they were just disobedient. They were just rebellious. They were just natural liars. You say, you're calling my kid a disobedient, rebellious liar? Yes! No, when the command of dad came, pick up your toys. When the command came, then what was revealed? Man, then that spirit of rebellion was revealed. And in that way, the law of God, when God's word came and said, do not eat of this tree, of any other tree you can eat, but of this tree, you may not eat of it, because in the day that you eat thereof, ye shall die. 
And now inside of Adam and Eve, this little rebellious heart said, I want to be my own boss. I want to call my own shots. I want to do my own thing. And Eve took of the fruit and did eat and gave unto her husband with her. And he did eat. And this was the beginning of when the curse fell upon all the human race in that we were disobedient to the command of God. The law of God, the command of God, they show us how disobedient we actually are in our hearts. That serves us in this way, that you and I are not as good as we think we are. But all we like sheep have gone astray. The law of God reveals our own sinful nature in that we, it exposes us. It causes us to see it. The law of God reveals our own sinful nature in that it escalates it. Look at verse number 19. What serveth the law then? It was added because of transgressions. Let's talk about your kids again. Okay. Who in the room has children that when you walk in and you catch your children in a lie, hey, why are you lying to me? They immediately say, I'm sorry, you're right, I lied, please forgive, I'll repent, and I'll pay back anything wrong that I've ever done. No, when you catch your child in a lie, what do they do? They go, no. Who wrote on the wall? I don't know. I think you did it. No, it wasn't me. But you're standing in the room. You're the only one in the room, and you have a crown in your hand. No, it wasn't me. Okay, but if it wasn't you, who did it? Uh, it was my sister. Your sister's at camp. I don't know who it was. I actually have a video of you scribbling on the wall. No, that's not me in the video. You're somebody who looks like me. It was an impersonator, Dad. And they deny that all the way down to the end, don't they? You see, the law of God exposes us and listen, the law of God escalates the sin in our heart and life. It's sin compounding on sin, compounding on sin. Sin begats sin. So that we've sinned against God, and now we have to continually sin and sin and sin, and it builds and it escalates in that way. And God, God, Paul says, this is what the law's purpose was. The law's purpose was like a mirror. The law's purpose was to show you how you're disobedient to a holy, righteous God. The law's purpose is this way. And listen, because of our disobedience, we deserve the wrath of God. Look, look at the words. These are tough words. For as many, look at verse 10. For as many are of the works of the law, they're under a curse. They're under a curse. And cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. We're under a curse. What is the curse, pastor? Here's the curse. For the wages of sin is death. So breaking the law of God brings death. It brings separation from God. All of the world is under a curse. All of the world is broken. We see the brokenness of the world everywhere. Nothing in the world is the way it's supposed to be. Our world is broken. Why? Because of sin. We see that brokenness in weather. That's why there's earthquakes and tornadoes. That's why there's hurricanes. Why? Because the world is broken. We see that brokenness in politics. We see that brokenness in the economy. We see that brokenness even in our own medical makeup, even our own physical bodies. It gets a little more difficult and a little more difficult to get out of bed each and every day. Why do, why do sicknesses exist? Why do illnesses exist? Why is there a thing such as cancer? People have heart attacks. That's not the way that God designed life to be. That is a result of sin. Sin broke our world and it separated us from God. And this is the curse that we're under. 
We are disobedient to God, and now because of our disobedience to a holy, righteous God, no one living perfect, no one living righteous, the only way we came to know that was by looking at the law of God, and now we all deserve the wrath of God in our hearts and in our lives, separated from a holy God. Listen to the group of people, Revelation chapter 21. But the fearful, and the unbelieving, and the abominable... And, the, and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. But listen, do you hear what book ends that long list of really awful people? What was the first one? Fearful. What was the last one? Liars. In the middle of all these really bad people, of which all of us would go, oh, those are, really, those are really awful people. I'm glad I'm not like those murderers, and I'm glad I'm not like those sorcerers, and I'm glad I'm not like those people who are, we serve false idols. But listen, the first one, fearful. Anybody in the room ever been afraid before? Okay, I'll get you on the last one. Anybody in the room ever lied before? If you didn't raise your hand on the first one, then you were guilty of the second one. The book ends of those are what? The fearful. And what is, that, what is that teaching us? It's teaching us all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the penalty for coming up short, the penalty for our sin is separation from God by way of death and separation from God for all of eternity in a place that the Bible calls hell. Now, aren't you glad you came to church today? Where's the good news? Here's the good news. Look at verse number 13. But Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Who in the room has been perfect? None of us. And yet Christ was perfect, and Christ died on the cross, not because of his own sin or guilt, but Christ died on the cross for your sin and mine. And then he appropriated or gave to you and to me his righteousness and took our wickedness upon himself. So this is why some of us are always feeling guilty. This is why some of us in the room are always feeling crushed. This is why some of us are always feeling frustrated with our relationship with God. Because we're always trying to relate to God by stuff we did. We're always trying to relate to God by the works of the law, by the works of the flesh. And when you try to work, when you try to relate to God by your own goodness, by your own righteousness, instead of just resting in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's not freedom there. There's only a sense of frustration. There's only a sense of guilt. There's only a sense of heaviness. Why? Because we've all broken the law because none of us are perfect. So what do we do then? That's number three, last one. The expression of the power of God. This is really verse 23 down to verse 26. Before faith came, we were kept under the law. We were shut up unto faith that we should afterwards be revealed. The law was a schoolmaster, was our teacher. It showed us that we needed Christ and that we were justified by faith in Christ. Look at verse 25. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for we are the children of God. Listen, as we relate to God through our works, man, what do we feel? We feel frustrated. We feel closed up. We feel boxed in. 
We feel like we never measure up. We feel like we can't do enough good, good works. We can't do enough good deeds. But when, when we relate to God through faith, then what do we feel? We feel freedom. We feel the freedom, and he uses the analogy of a child. Uh, have you ever noticed your kids do not care if you're having an important meeting or not? If they have something to tell you, they're going to interrupt in the middle of a very important conversation. Dad, 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 dad. What? The, 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 the sun. Shiny. Thank you. It's been up for hours. I'm glad you interrupted this conversation to tell me that. You ever notice how, how unashamedly bold children are? I remember having this conversation with Ethan about how it was not appropriate to go out in public in his Batman pajamas. He's like, well, why not? I said, because they're pajamas. Yeah, but, but they're Batman pajamas and they're epic and I want to go. And many people go to Walmart thinking this is completely okay and it's not. Children don't care. They just interrupt the conversation. They just interrupt the meeting. They just go outside in their pajamas. They don't care. There's just freedom there. You remember what that felt like? There was a freedom there to just, man, I'm free to express who I am, the love that God has given to me because of the faith that I have in God. There's a freedom. There's not a sense of frustration. There's a sense of full freedom that I'm loved in Christ. I'm accepted by God. He claims me as his own. I don't have to relate to him by my own good doing. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and he bought me and brought me into his family. And now there's this, there's this understanding of full acceptance. The way that Paul relates this idea is he uses the person of Abraham. We don't know a lot about Abraham, but this is what we know about Abraham. Abraham, by the world's definition, was completely successful in a region of the world called Ur of the Chaldees. It's rich and oppressive and monotonous. And Abraham, living in Ur of the Chaldees, is trying to relate to God by his own religiousness. And God called Abraham out to go into a country whither he know not where he went. Hebrews 11. So God calls Abraham, Abraham, you're trying to relate to me by richness. You're trying to relate to me by success. You're trying to relate to me by your own good works. But Abraham, you're not perfect. And I'm perfect. And my standard is perfection. So Abraham, you're coming up short. So Abraham, leave this life of Ur of the Chaldees and come out into the wilderness and follow me. And Abraham went out not knowing where he went because he esteemed the promises of God greater than. He thought God's promise was better for God's promise was more important to him than all the riches of Ur of the Chaldees. And Abraham went after God in that sense. And that was counted, listen, that was counted to Abraham as faith. So Abraham's faith in hearing God call to him and then obeying it, that was added to Abraham's account as righteousness. Listen, Abraham for the first time in his life was free to go after God. Only if you understand your relationship to God is by faith through grace, only then are you actually free to go after God. If you're trying to relate to God through your own religiousness and your own good deeds, 
then you cannot understand, you, you cannot accept all the demands that God's law puts on you. Why? Because it would crush you. Because it would crush you. So, so going back to the beginning, and we'll end here. What are the purposes of the arrows again? So, so why do we have the arrows? Well, the arrows point us in the right direction, don't they? The arrows serve as a way of helping us understand that our faith is not blind. It's not trial and error. It's not guesswork. It's that we are fully accepted in faith by grace from God through Jesus Christ, but that the arrows serve to help the traffic flow easy, don't they? The arrows help us stay away from fender benders, don't they? The arrows help us get in and out of the parking lot relatively quickly. So when you understand that God's word serves to help you understand how life goes best, the law of God serves you in a way that helps you understand how to use your identity, how to use your sexuality, how to use your money, how to use your time, how to relate to your friends or coworkers, what to do at your job, how you should work throughout your week, what you should do with your children, what you should do with your parents, even how you should approach a weekend. That when you understand God's word helps you understand divine direction in your life, it is then and only then that you can say like the psalmist, oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Oh, the law of God? Oh, no, that's not old news for me. That's sweeter than honey to my lips. If you're trying to relate to God only by your own good works, the law is not sweet as honey. It's as bitter as vinegar because it reminds you of how you cannot measure up to God. That's why Jesus in Matthew 5 says, do not kill. And in fact, don't just not murder someone. Don't be angry with someone. Because if you're angry with someone, anger is the root of murder. So if you've ever been angry, it's like you've murdered them and you're guilty of murder. You see, and what we have to do, if we're trying to relate to God through our own good works, is we have to say, well, anger doesn't really mean anger there. Not really mad. It, what anger there it actually means is, no, it actually means anger. Like you got mad at someone. That is the root of murder. And Jesus says, if you've ever been mad at someone, it's like you've murdered that someone. Some of you are like, well, if I'm guilty of it, then I'm just going to go ahead and follow through, right? You see, what we have to do is we have to say, no, it doesn't really mean that. But Jesus says, actually what Jesus says there is not just be angry at them, but don't even be cold or indifferent toward them. Don't just not think negative thoughts, but you must always think positive thoughts. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. You must always think those thoughts towards someone because if you're cold and indifferent toward them, it's because you weren't thinking the, these positive thoughts toward them. You're cold and indifferent and bitter toward them. That cold indifference and bitterness is the root of anger. Anger is the root of murder. So now guess what you've done? You've murdered them in your heart and in your mind and you're guilty of breaking the law. Do you understand how heavy the law is? It crushes us. Because who's not been mad at someone? Some of you are mad at me right now because you're late for lunch. You're like, if I could just wring his neck right now, I would just. 
Only if you understand you're accepted by God through faith and grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, only then can you look at the law of God and go, yeah, that's right. I should only think thoughts of love, joy, and peace. Listen, only then are you free to delight in God's law. You're free to go, yes, that's how I want to interact with my brothers or sisters. Yes, that's what I want to do with my neighbors. Yes, that's what I want to do. And you don't feel, look at me, some of us feel so guilty all the time. You don't feel the guilt, you feel the freedom. You're finally free to delight in the law of God. And you're finally free to demonstrate a love for God. Imagine this, imagine the scene. Someone pulls in the parking lot. They follow all the arrows. They park in the parking stall assigned. They're so happy. They obeyed every law. They followed every sign in the parking lot. They didn't even drive over one of the white lines. I mean, they were right down the center. Oh, I followed the law. They put the car in reverse. They back out and they exit the parking lot. They drive around the block and they come back in the entrance. Ooh, I did it again. I followed the law. They pull into the spot. Oh, I'm so happy I obeyed every law and never crossed the line. Now they back out and they exit the parking lot. They go around the block. They come back and oh, I did it again. Woo, three times in a row. You say, how silly. They didn't park the car. They didn't open the door. They didn't walk into the building. They didn't worship God. They didn't give. They didn't pray. They did not relate to God through singing or God's word. But they followed every arrow in the parking lot. And some of us, this is how we're trying to relate to God. We're trying to relate to God by only following the rules, the signs in the parking lot, and not having full relationship with him, and that we're finally free to go after God? Was Abraham perfect? Did he have frustrations and failures and interruptions and delays and doubts? But was Abraham justified in the sight of God? How? So why does God then give us the law? God gives us the law to help us understand the divine direction for our hearts and for our lives. And it serves our faith. But look at me. It is not our faith. It serves our faith because it helps us understand the best way in which traffic flows. But it is not our faith.